Hello and welcome to All of the Above. I'm James Brown. Thanks for joining me. You can check out my work at jamesbrowntv.substack.com or just about anywhere online at James Brown TV. Help me grow this program by liking, sharing, and subscribing. One of my favorite things in the world, and one I intend to do a lot on this program, is speaking with people who do unique things for work, like Jeff Tyzik. He's a fellow Rochester, New York resident who's long been known as one of the most innovative composers in the world. The list of his accomplishments is long. He's a Grammy winner. He's released nearly 30 records. He's appeared with more than 50 orchestras all around the world. He joins me now to discuss his path, his career, music, and whatever else is on his mind. Jeff Tyzik, welcome to the program. Hey, James, great to be here with you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. Where are you? Well, actually, right now I'm in Rochester. Uh, I just came back from Toronto. I was conducting uh, a Motown show in Toronto with these incredible artists, Chester Gregory, who was uh, he, he was Barry Gordy in, in Motown, the musical. Uh, Shana Steele, who's worked with Chris Bode, and she toured the world with uh, Bette Midler as a, as a background vocalist, but she's a phenomenal jazz vocalist on her own. And also Michael Lynch, who was American Idol, Big Mike, uh, season nine, Big Mike. So uh, we just did that concert in Toronto on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. And uh, we're actually doing it in Rochester next week. So I'm home for that. Phenomenal concert, just great music. And, and they're incredible artists. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I've been moving around a lot. I was in Italy a couple of weeks ago. And then I've, I've been conducting in, in, a, in Oregon in different cities. So it's been a, kind of a crazy spring, but I'm happy with it. It's a crazy spring. Is it is this a typical stretch for you? Yeah, it is. Um, I do about maybe 18 to 20 weeks of conducting a year. Uh, I, I, I have a position with the Detroit Symphony, so I go there three weeks a year. Uh, Dallas, I do four weeks a year, and including uh, Vail, Colorado. We go out there for a, a music festival every year at the end of June. Um, I also do the Oregon Symphony. I go there three weeks a year. And then I do the Rochester Philharmonic here for about six or seven weeks, depending on the season. And then in the middle of that, you know, I also guest conduct. I mean, I, I, I conducted the Cleveland Orchestra uh, in the past year and, uh, you know, a bunch of other orchestras around the country as well. So uh, mostly those four orchestras, but other ones that come up that interest me. You're in your 70s, right? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm 71. Yet you're on the road 18 weeks a year. Yeah. I, I, do you plan on slowing down anytime soon? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm in what the musicians call a diminuendo, which means you're, you're, you're doing a kind of a slow, you know, decrease in tempo and, and volume. Yeah, no, I am. Uh, not as much as... Uh, Maybe I'd like, but it kind of has a life of its own. Because the funny thing about the orchestra world is you make your commitment 18 months to two years in advance. So when you say, oh, I want to slow down, well, you've already committed two years out. You know, So you've got to wait till the next year to sort of taper off the year from that. And, uh, but yeah, I am uh, you know, I'm doing a lot of writing, uh, you know, producing uh, composing, arranging type things, creating a lot of concert material. And I, I, I love 
being with an orchestra on stage, it's an incredible uh, artistic and emotional experience for both audience musicians and me. But I'm not fond of hotels and airports and, and all that kind of stuff. I've, a few years ago, at that point, I had two million miles banked on, a, on United, 500,000 on American, and I don't know how many on Delta, you know. And it's like, wow, I have all these miles, and, and I don't really want to go anywhere because I'm always going somewhere, you know. And I think I had at one point, I had like a million Marriott points and, you know, all that stuff. It's crazy. Wow. I, 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 at your height of your travel schedule, how, how often did you go out of town? Well, before the pandemic, I had two years where I was only home 10 days a month for, for a, a seven or eight month period. So I was really booking it back then, you know, then the pandemic hit and actually, you know, a lot of orchestras, closed down during the pandemic because you there wasn't going to be nobody in the theater you couldn't have people um that was all over the country but orchestras decided they needed to stay relevant and they wanted to do something so within the guidelines of social distancing and uh which affected how many people could be on stage orchestras got into streaming so they were trying to still reach their subscriber base uh by saying hey you can now watch us on Friday night live. We're going to be doing a live concert. Um, and we were limited to the number of players we could have on stage because of you know social distancing rules. So I actually had to write a ton of music for small orchestra because not a lot of music exists for that. Um, so I'll never forget. Uh, so anyway, before I get to that, uh, you know, during the pandemic, I was, traveling and 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 my wife and my manager both said you're out of your mind because this is before testing before vaccines so you know i was masking up and gloving up and all the stuff that we find out later really didn't make a difference anyway uh and i was flying and i was going to detroit and dallas and places and we were doing these streaming concerts so we were playing in a, in a, a theater a 2000 seat theater to nobody except cameras and there was no music. So I I created a couple of concerts. One was a ragtime concert, and it was music of uh, Scott Joplin, Jelly Roll Morton, uh, W.C. Handy, um, you know, all this kind of early jazz, which was kind of written for small orchestras anyway. You know, that's kind of was the nature of the music. So I, I put a concert together with that that was very successful. And then the Detroit Symphony wanted to have this group troop vertigo which is a circ group come and perform for streaming and they do all these classical masterworks like you know dvorak symphonic dances and uh you know all, all these different pieces that are for full orchestra so i had to take those pieces which are written for full orchestra and condense them so that they could be played by 24 people and still sound real still sound right which, I mean, it took hundreds of hours. And so I ended up writing a lot of music during that time period. So we would do these concerts, you know, we'd play this big piece, piece would finish dead silence. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> in the hall, you know? And then you'd turn around and there's a camera out there and I'd have to talk to the camera. 
And so then they started letting in, in a 2,000 seat hall, 50 people. So, and they would sit, you know, like 40 feet apart, like all over the hall. And I'll tell you one thing 50 people, when they're clapping, can make a hell of a racket in a 2,000 seat room, you know? Uh, so then we'd play, and there would be 50 people, and we would be still streaming. And I'll never forget that uh, Buffalo asked me if I would come and uh, help them out because the conductor that they normally used was quarantined and couldn't come. So I went there and did a few weeks. But one of them, some of the restrictions had lifted, and we actually had 250 people in the audience. And the orchestra was, people were crying. Because people were back in the room. I mean, we had, you know, this kinetic energy that happens between the listener and the musicians. It hadn't been there for months and months. And all of a sudden there were people and it was like, it was unbelievable, the, the emotion on stage. So that was a pretty crazy time period. Uh, so anyway, since then, since the pandemic, you know, I've, after that, I've, I've cut back a bit. But before the pandemic, it's a long answer to a short question. I'm sorry. But um yeah i was out there that one year man i i came home and and i was i'd unpack and like five days later i'm gone again you know uh and then sometimes i'd be gone for two or three weeks at a time so i'm a little over that to be honest with you you know yeah i got you i have a couple different questions about your long answer there it's a 2000 seat auditorium you were in and I'm, i'm assuming you've played in larger places how do you compare being in a in a packed crowd in front of a packed crowd, a sparsely filled crowd versus no one. What's the sensation in all three environments? Well, when you're playing for no one, you're totally focused on the musicians in front of you. And uh, you're concentrating on, on doing what we need to do together to make this music come alive. And it can be... Uh, you, you're not distracted by anything else. You're not distracted by any person, by any visual that's going on. You just—it's like you're in a recording studio, and you're totally focused on the music. So you you can create really great music that way, and and the musicians communicate with each other as they do. In a full house, there's a new element. If you imagine, uh, you know, here here here's the orchestra. And here is the audience, and here is the conductor. I'm in the middle between the orchestra and the audience. And the energy that flows between the orchestra and the audience is just unbelievable because you, even if people are not, you know, in a pop concert, if somebody plays a jazz solo, people are going to applaud during the piece, you know, that kind of a thing. But if we're playing some big classical piece, People are going to applaud at the end, not not take part. But you can still feel the energy in the room of the listeners. If you are tweaking the listeners, you can feel their emotion, their energy, even if they're not applauding or yelling or something. You know, so that experience takes it to a whole new level because humans are, you know, we're putting out this ethereal thing called sound. And that is touching the spirit and the soul of the people in the room. And there is an energy coming back. And I'm standing right in the middle of it. So that is electric. When it's a sparse house, I think there is a tendency when musicians walk out on stage at first 
they they were like, oh, it's a small crowd tonight, you know, for about two minutes. And then they then everybody is like, you know what? It doesn't matter if there's one person out there. We're going to play our hearts out for that one person, you know. And then you you kind of get to that place where um, you might think it's it, initially you might feel well, there's not going to be as much uh, energy in the room, but it's kind of a hybrid sort of between the huge crowd and the nobody, you know, and, and then you, you work the energy. It, the energy is still palpable in that group of people. And sometimes a smaller crowd is even more effusive than a large crowd. You know, it's hard, it's hard to, to, to pick on it. So to me, look, to walk on stage is a privilege. It always has been to get to do, to get to walk into a room and create sound and touch the human spirit of, of whoever's in the room is a privilege to get to do that. So to me, it's always, uh, it's always a special experience, but there are these elements that make them each unique. You also mentioned scaling down compositions. Yeah. Can you walk me through that? How do you do that? Well, you know, if you have a piece, where it's written for you know two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, two bassoons, four French horns, three trumpets, three trombones, and tuba. So that is you know eight you know that that's about eighteen wind players plus strings and then all the other things that happen. So I I would have to take the music written for eighteen wind players and get it down to ten. And that means I have to do very creative things with the chords, which notes to leave in, which notes to leave out. Sometimes there are four French horn parts, and I only have two horn players and two trumpet players. I'll have the trumpet players play flugelhorn, which is a more mellow instrument. It sounds a little bit like a French horn. So if it's just a French horn passage with four notes, then I, I'll make the two trumpets play flugelhorn and mix it in with the French horns. And it gives the impression that it's, it's still the same sound. But you just don't, you can't start at the top and go, okay, I'm just going to give all this, the, the three and four horn parts to trumpet one and two. You can't do that because they don't always play together and there's different things that happen. So you have to figure out how to put the essential parts in and still keep the character of the piece while you are uh, starting to condense the number of players. So it's, it's, it's kind of a complicated process. With the strings, it's really not that complicated because there are only four string parts, even though there are 12 first violins, they're all playing the same part. So basically you can just say, okay, well, instead of you know 28 strings, we're only going to use 12. So you're going to have smaller numbers, but all the parts are going to be there. But with when you take two flutes and say, well, now it's only going to be one. Two oboes, well, now it's only, only going to be one. And two clarinets and there are two bassoons, there's going to be one. So you've taken eight down to five. And then instead of four French horns, you know, three trumpets, four, uh, three trombones and tuba, so that's 11, you're going to take that down to five as well. Now there's a lot of choices you have to make and, and make changes in what they are playing. I'm not rewriting the music, but I am reorchestrating the music. So that it's it's a very lengthy process and if you're doing a piece that is something everybody knows like you know dance macabre you know the, which is the the big violin solo they always play at high uh, halloween you know the Saint-Saëns dance macabre i mean if you're going to take that piece and condense it 
it better be right. <laughs> Everybody knows that piece in the world. So I would say I was, I felt I really needed, it was funny because the Detroit Symphony said we booked True Vertigo. And I said, okay, it's a pandemic. What are you going to play? Well, you know, we're going to play this classical music. And I said, how are you going to do that? <laughs> you know, there's 39 different parts. You can only have 18 people on stage. How are you going to do it? Well, we, you know, well, we, well, we have these kind of bad arrangements, you know, and when I hear that, you're going to put the Detroit Symphony on stage with bad arrangements? Not going to happen. So that's when I said to myself, you know, I think I could figure a very artistic way to reduce this music, to give the impression of the full symphonic music to make sure all the essential parts are there but but condense it down so i went on this quest and i spent months doing it i went into the first rehearsal with this small ensemble in detroit and i'm going oh my god you know these players i mean they they played dance macabre like you know 90 times in the in the right version and they're all in there and everybody is sort of shell-shocked from the pandemic anyway and i'm thinking boy i don't know this is going to be interesting how this goes you know and we started to play the music and I saw the musicians smiling and they were like, wow, we can do this. And this actually sounds good, you know? So it was, uh, it was a journey and the music, the musicians ended up really appreciated. Uh, and now since then, what's happened is that, you know, there are a lot of orchestras that do concerts where they can't take the full orchestra. Like maybe they'll like, imagine in Rochester, this place is, uh, you know, there's Highland Park which is this big place in Rochester where they, it's a beautiful park. And I think it was designed by Olmsted, the same guy who did uh, Central Park in New York. And they, there's a little stage in there in, in Highland Park, in the Highland Park Bowl, there's this little stage. And sometimes the orchestra will go there and play and they only can put 20 people on stage. And there's never music for that. Well, guess what? Now there is. So a lot of small orchestras are buying this music for summer concerts or these these special events that they do when they can't feel the full orchestra. So there is a life for that music beyond the pandemic. So it's turned into a good thing. Your description sounds the equivalent of a musical optical illusion. Is that an appropriate term? Yeah, I would say it's an, it's a musical audio illusion. <laughs> yes. Very interesting. And, and as you were describing it, another thing popped into my head you were you're working with well-known music a lot, but you also done a lot of your own compositions. True. When you're uh, uh, obviously with your own composition, you can adapt it as you as see see fit. I would imagine that there are more limits with something that's well known. It's funny that you say that because um, on the Troop Vertigo concert, the music director of the of uh, the artistic director of Troop Vertigo really likes actually some of my original compositions and one of the ones they were doing was something uh it's called three latin dances and it's it's a really it's a beautiful piece it has uh three dances in it it has the cuban danzon which is a romantic dance it has the the cha-cha which is a cuban dance and it has the malambo which is an argentinian dance which is a very exciting piece and i wrote it for a huge orchestra and when we were going to do the concert in Detroit, she said, well, I, I want to do your three Latin dances. And I said to her, and I thought about it, I said, I don't know if I can, if I can condense that piece. 
Um, I, there's so many things in it. I, I don't know if I could really make that piece come alive. She said, you, you can, you'll figure it out. So of all the music I did for that concert, that was the hardest. My own piece was the hardest one to actually condense. Um, just because of, of how massive I had made it, it, it gets pretty big at the end. It's a huge piece. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I just look at music. Um, if I'm going to do anything, like reduce something or if if like uh, you know this company Shermer has come to me over the years with duke ellington music uh and ellington didn't write a lot for orchestra he wrote a few pieces for orchestra which are, are pretty good but most of his stuff is written for his big band and they've said well we want you to orchestrate these pieces we want you to make them work for symphony orchestra um i always feel like if i'm gonna do an ellington strayhorn piece like duke is on one shoulder and Billy's on the other shoulder, and they're watching me work on their music, and they're saying, "Oh, don't do that! That that no no that's 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 too much Tizik. Just do that. Yeah, that's Ellington, you know." So I always feel like the composer. I imagine they're in the room with me, saying, "Well, that's what I would have done." Uh, and so I try to think of it from their perspective. Like somebody comes to Sanson and says, "Look, I'll give you ten thousand pounds." If you will perform Dance Macabre for the King in London, but we only have 18 players, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know. So then I think, okay, uh, there's the project. How can I make this work? So it's always some things probably can't be reduced, but there are examples, for instance, where uh, there are many composers who have reduced their own music. Uh, so we know it's possible. So I, I just try to do it using all of the education skill and and things that I've learned over the years of working with orchestras in a way that is as creative, but as good as it possibly can be to satisfy the listener uh, who has heard the original so many times to make it as real as it can be. It's so, so it takes a lot of time to do that and a lot of care and thought and, you know, tearing apart a chord. Like what are the essential notes here? Well, this note is doubled in three places. Well, we only need one person to do that to give the impression. You know, it's all this, it's kind of technical musical stuff, but it, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty deep, actually. It's not easy. Just thinking about the process you're laying out there, uh, the, the only way I can relate up to it really is, um, like, I've worked as a journalist and I've been out covering the same story as someone else. And I know that when I write about the same thing that someone else is going to write about it, I'm going to, my lens is different. Therefore, my imprint and my, my shape, how I shape the whole, the same concept would be different. How do you know when to pull back on the Tyzek? Are you, are, is it always a conversation with uh, Billy and Duke or, or whoever, whoever created it before? Um, no, it's it's um, occasionally there. Like for instance, if I I do a uh, uh, a Duke Ellington collection of maybe six or seven different pieces, there are times when I know I'm writing this for a symphony orchestra to play, and it's not going to have a full sax section. It's just going to be kind of a, a more of a Boston pops or a Cincinnati pops sort of treatment of it. Um, I want to keep it as authentic as I can, but I, I, I'm only going to have one saxophone and I'm limited by 
you know, orchestral rhythm section players, et cetera. So I'll modify the music to work in that context. Um, and so it's not as authentic as I would like, but it still is very representative of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. However, when I'm creating a concert of a, of a new show, like I'm writing, like I have a show that I've written for Shermer called Lush Life. And it is actually all Ellington and Strayhorn. And on that one, I went back and I really, uh, I, I copped exactly what they were doing in the band. So I had full sax section and, you know, and the only thing I, I did on that one that they didn't do, I, you know, we have an amazing string orchestra. So I added strings to it and the strings are not just fluff, you know, playing, you know, whole notes and sound. I mean, the strings are sometimes playing the saxophone parts because it's so cool when they do that. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, I have an arrangement on this Motown show of uh, Superstition. Yeah, Stevie Wonder. And it's got that. Yeah, and it's got that line in right, and the horns are playing that. The trumpets and saxes. I have the string section going, and they can play it, and they love it. So, and I don't think Stevie. Imagine strings would be playing that, but I know they can play it and it's exciting, you know, so I, I make those kind of choices, you know, when, uh, when I can. Uh, so, you know, it, it's kind of going back and forth. Um, I don't want to change it too much, but I, I want to, if Stevie gets to hear it, I want to blow his mind and have him say, wow, I never imagined the string orchestra, the cellos are playing that line, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of part of the fun of it. You also mentioned playing outdoors versus indoors. How does that affect your compositions, your approach? Does it at all? Um, you know, you you have to give it up. Um, you're the victim of technology when you're outside and weather. You know, as a matter of fact, something is as is as crazy as the wind. I mean, the players have to use paper clip i mean uh you know uh laundry clips to clip their music to their stands they have these fancy clips and i've been in the middle of a concert and somebody's music is blowing across the stage <laughs> you know i mean so you're dealing with elements and you're dealing with humidity and temperature so if the temperature is either too cold if it's below i think the rules are something if it's below 60 might be 68 degrees or above 90 or maybe 92 the musicians can't play because it it can really affect it can crack the violins there's there's stuff that can happen with outdoor temperatures so that we haven't even gotten to the music yet but we're just dealing with that stuff you know and then you've got sound issues like if you're going to play outside everything is going to be mic'd every single thing so you're never getting what i would call you know, an acoustic sound. Um, you know, usually on pops concerts, there are a lot of miking and and speakers stuff being used. But you know, there like if I do a John Williams concert with you know music of E.T., Superman, you know Harry Potter, all that kind of stuff, we don't use any microphones. We just use the acoustic properties of the shell. Um, you can't do that outside because outside the sound will will travel about twenty feet, and <laughs> that's about it. You know. So you're you're having to work with the sound system and the temperature and, and the weather conditions and and you know it it's pretty tricky 
On the other hand, it could be a lot of fun. Uh, every summer on Vail, I do, uh, we do concerts in something that's a little bit like uh, what we have down at, at the Finger Lakes. Uh, so there's a, there's a shell, there's uh, a roof over part of the audience, the sides are open, and then there's a lawn where people sit. And there's some acoustic property in there. But, you know, it's fun to, to have 4,000 people outside going crazy. You know, that, that's, that's kind of another type of experience. That's good. Um, and there have been some kind of magical moments. I mean, I, one of the things that jumps out of my, my head was I, I remember when I uh, was working with Chuck Mangione, this jazz artist from Rochester, and we were recording a live album at the Hollywood Bowl. And there were 18,000 people there. And that is quite an in incredible experience. And then another experience with Chuck was there's a, a theater in, outside of Denver called Red Rocks. And it's built into the side of a mountain. And the seats are actually, they're stone. Everything is stone. You got to bring your, your, your pillows and stuff to sit on or you're going to be crazy. And uh, it seats 10,000 people. And we did a sunrise concert. So we started playing at five o'clock in the morning. We played from five to nine for uh, actually about maybe it was, did we started five. Yeah, I think we started, or maybe we started at six because sun, sun came up at seven. So we played six to nine for 10,000 people. They left. We came back and played seven to 10 the same night for another 10,000 people outside. And, you know, that's a big production concert and, and with, with sound and everything. But that, that was an amazing experience. So, I mean, you know, playing outside can be cool. But it's, it's also sometimes, you know, maybe you don't get the best sound engineer and the sound is weird and things happen and music's blowing all over the place. You know, it's a challenge. So, Do you have a preference? Inside or outside? No, I, I just think if people came, we're going to give them our best wherever we are. If we're in a high school gym playing for kids or if we're in, you know, uh, Hollywood Bowl or if we're in the Eastman Theater or if I'm conducting, in, you know, in, in, in Monaco, which I have, uh, you know, it, it's the same. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you one of my, you want to hear one of my most memorable moments because you'll never believe that this is what it, what it is, okay? We have a, a high school here in the Rochester inner city, uh, Wilson Magnet High School. Mm -hmm. And... Many years ago, I was doing a series of concerts with the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra that were, I titled the concerts um, uh, Overcoming Adversity. So we played uh, an, uh, an Ellington piece on the concert, and I said, you know, here's the incredible, great American composer, Duke Ellington, and he played for kings and queens and presidents and earls, but you know what? They wouldn't let him use the bathroom. They he couldn't stay in the hotels in the city he was in. He couldn't eat in the restaurants, you know. I mean, he was treated poorly because of racial discrimination, but he overcame it all to be one of America's greatest composers. Let's look at, uh, you know, we had our trumpet player, Doug Prosser, in, in the band. And when he was in Barcelona playing in his early career, he completely split his lip, thought he'd never play again. But a, a, one of the preeminent facial surgeons in the world lived in Barcelona and put him back together. Now he's our principal trumpet player. He played something, you know. And then I talked about Shostakovich, the 
Soviet composer who in in during his day in, in Russia, if you didn't write what the Communist Party wanted you to write as a member of the Bureau of Soviet Composers, they would just shoot you. <laughs> that was it. So he wrote this joyous fanfare, and it was an incredible piece, and he kept it in his desk until after Stalin died. So that was kind of the nature of the concert. So we, we go to, to uh, Wilson Magnet High School, and you know it was a young inner city crowd, and then this orchestra on stage um, with not a lot of diversity in the orchestra. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this is going to be an interesting morning because we're playing Shostakovich, but we are playing, you know, the music's different. The crowd is different. We're in a high school on Thursday morning at 10 o'clock. This is going to be a, this is going to be a ride. I don't know where it's going, but, you know, so, so we start Shostakovich and the whole opening is this big fanfare. And then the music gets very fast. You know, it's going on. It's exciting. Then in the middle, there's another big fanfare. And then there's an even more exciting ending. So, you know, my back is to the audience. And we start the ending section. And it is building. And I'm hearing this roar behind me. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. A fight, something's going on out there. There's there's something going on. And I'm starting to get nervous, actually. And, like, we're playing a piece. We get to the end. I turn around. And this young audience would never in their life heard Shostakovich had been giving us a standing ovation for a whole minute and clapping and screaming and yelling. And that showed me the power of music. It didn't matter who we were, how old, how young, what color. It didn't really matter. We're in a room playing this incredible music, and the audience responded to it, you know, uh, as something they'd never heard in their life before. So that was so powerful. Uh, it just showed me you can be anywhere playing for any people and have that kind of impact. That's part one of my conversation with Jeff Tyzik. Part two is coming next week. Thanks to all of my supporters at jamesbrowntv.substack.com. And all of my listeners, I am thrilled that you spend your time with me. You can reach me at jamesbrowntv at gmail.com or james at rochesteraccent.com. I also have a voicemail line. It's 585-484-0339. I'm James Brown, and as always, be well.